So John chapter 5, if you would turn there in your Bibles, John chapter 5. I heard it's going to be a warm summer, and I'm not complaining. I'm looking forward to that. It's been a beautiful weekend, hasn't it? Wow, man. We live in the most beautiful spot. We really do. Um, but we're talking about getting some air conditionings in this old building. Um, so anyway, we'll do something. I don't know. Do you know any black market? No. <laughs> I'm joking. We got to do something. It's so hot. You know, this part of the building was built in uh, the 30s. And so there's no insulation in the walls at all. And the other wing was built in the 60s. And they, I don't know if they put any insulation in that part either, but it's a little breezy. Anyway, yeah, okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today, and we pray, Lord, that you would teach us as we look at your word today, Father. I, I think I always pray this, Lord, that we would not look at the scriptures as merely an account of something that happened so long ago, but, but rather we would look at this and, and ask, Lord, what life application could I draw from this portion of scripture? And Lord, we know that you are faithful to teach your children. You want us to grow. So we thank you in advance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 5, we're going to look at the first 15 verses, but we're going to first read the first nine verses and uh, kind of camp on those for a few moments, and then we'll, we'll move on to the remainder. It says, after this, so that would be after the things that we read and we studied in chapter 4, after this, there was a feast of the Jews. We're not told what feast it was. But we are told that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Most likely, John mentioned the feast so that we might know why Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Because we know that Jesus, for the most part, his ministry was done in the Galilee. And so Jesus was there, verse 2. Now, there in Jerusalem, by the sheep's, sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, uh, uh, Bethesda, yes, I, you know, what throws me is the spelling, because there's so many different spellings of this particular word. I want to say Bethesda, uh, with the, without the Z, but, but it's been, anyway, so I'm an idiot. Having five porches, in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, or that word paralyzed could also be rendered withered. Now, I'm stopping here, I'm pausing here, because the remainder of verse 3 and all of verse 4 are not found in the earliest manuscripts. So I'm going to read those, but I want you to keep that in mind, and I'll come back to that in a moment. So it goes on, it says, Waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, verse 5, of course, is there in the earlier manuscripts. Now, a certain man was there who had an infirmity, 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and, know, and knew that he had already been in that condition for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? 
The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Guys, look at verse 8. I, I stopped short here. And Jesus said to him, Rise, take your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And then we have this important part. And that day was a Sabbath. So, first of all, I want you to note, and you're familiar, if you're familiar, if you're a student of the scriptures, you know that in the gospel accounts, that it, it seems almost as if Jesus did things on the Sabbath on purpose. And, um, and he was always getting into hot water. Actually, there's only seven miracles of Jesus that are recorded uh, in the gospel accounts that he performed on the Sabbath. Seven, which I think is interesting because, you know, seven is that number of completion. Um, there were many things that happened on the Sabbath, like when Jesus and his disciples were walking through the grain field, remember, and his disciples picked the heads of the grain and they rubbed them, that they were supposedly guilty of breaking the law because they were working by rubbing these grains in their hands. So there were many things that Jesus did, but only seven miracles, seven miraculous things uh, were done on the Sabbath. So that's important, obviously, to the text. But let's go back and consider what we're reading here. I think it's worth noting that the early manuscripts does not include the second part of verse 3 and all of verse 4. So the original or the early manuscripts do not mention an angel stirring the water at all. So that's key. That's important. Because in verse 7, we see that the water is stirred up. So what was going on there? What was stirring up the water? And was it true that the first one in is healed? What a strange thing. The pool is uh, it's been called the house of mercy or the house of grace. Some say it's the place of outpouring. And, uh, and we're told that there are many people there. Obviously, you kind of get the picture that there are multitudes of people there. It wasn't actually one pool, but it was two pools. They go back to the time of Solomon. They were a reservoir, so a source of water for the city there. But it had become something else during the times of Christ. So you could kind of imagine uh, people there under the coverings, under the little patio coverings there by the two pools, and you have multitudes of people there, and these aren't just people sunbathing, these are people that are suffering. These are people that, that um, have serious conditions. We're not told that the water was stirred up at a particular time, just at a time. So. What was going on here? I mean, there had to have been something going on here that would keep all of these suffering people there at the pool hoping for a miraculous cure. But what was going on there? Now, I'll warn you ahead of time that today I'm going to look at this text maybe from more of a critical perspective. You'll see what I mean in a, in a few moments here. But... I think it's worth noting that we see 
the Lamb of God, so Jesus, the Lamb of God, according to the text, he goes through the sheep gate. So there are many ways that he could have entered the city, but he goes through the sheep gate. He goes to the pool, the house of mercy or the house of grace or the house of outpouring. And he goes there to minister to one man. Now, I emphasize that because, you know, some would say, no, I just believe. Listen, we got to be careful when we say, I just believe when we don't have biblical text to back it up. Um, we want to believe that, oh, Jesus, after he healed the one, he healed all of them. Well, the text doesn't tell us that at all. In fact, the text tells us that the man, as we'll see in a few moments, um, he didn't even catch the name of Jesus, that Jesus had slipped away because there was a multitude gathered there. So you get the, the impression that Jesus, after healing the man, he kind of wanted to escape, you know, get out of there. There would probably be an uproar of, of people when they see that this man is healed. How did that happen? We didn't even see the water stirred, you know. What's going on here? So what was going on? You look at this and you say, well, this was one of those uh, you know, unusual means of healings uh, that we of healing that we see in the Bible. We see a number of unusual means in the Bible. We see Naaman, Naaman the Syrian. He's told to go and dip himself seven times in the Jordan. Remember, he protested. He he thought that the Jordan was beneath him, this dirty, muddy Jordan. Uh, there's better rivers in Syria. Why would I have to dip myself in this particular mud hole, you know? And, of course, uh, his servant girl, uh, who was a Hebrew, reasoned with him and, you know, persuaded him. You know, I guess, yeah, if he would have asked me to do something difficult, I probably would have done it, you know. And so he dipped himself, and, of course, he was healed. His skin became like a baby's skin, you know, just as pure as could be. Leprosy was gone. So that was unusual. In the New Testament, we know that there was uh, the healing that took place when Peter's shadow was cast upon people. So as Peter was walking down the road, if his shadow happened to fall upon someone who was sick, someone who was in need, they would be healed miraculously. I'm, that, that's wonderful. And then, of course, uh, in Acts, that, we find that in Acts chapter 5, but we also find in Acts chapter 19 that Paul as well, they would take his, uh, our Bible says handkerchief, but it actually is sweatbands. So, um, you know, he would put a sweatband upon his forehead to keep the sweat from going down, probably around his wrist. I know you're thinking of 70s basketball, but, um, <laughs> but, but he would take these sweat, but they would take these sweatbands and they would lay them on sick people and the sick people would be healed. So you go, that's, that's unusual, that's amazing. God, God does things in unexpected ways. God is wonderful. But... Do we see anything like this in the scripture? Remember, the second half of verse 3 and all of verse 4 are not found in the original or the latest or the, the early, earliest manuscripts. And it's believed that those two portions of scripture are what we find in our scripture. The remainder of verse 3 
all of verse 4, that they were a later insertion to explain how and why the water was stirred up. So I want you to think about this. Do we see anything like this in the scriptures? And I want you to just kind of back off a little bit because some of you are going to say, oh, you're speaking blasphemy. I'm not speaking blasphemy because I'm not speaking against the scripture. I'm just simply pointing out that, that this was added to explain how the waters were stirred up. But did they really know how the waters were stirred up? Did anyone see an angel come down and stir up the water and say, first come, first serve? You know, or was this tradition? You say, oh. Yeah, we should say, oh, tradition. I was telling the first service, my grandmother, Grandma Nina, she's my, she was my father's mother, a devout Catholic. And um, when she uh, was diagnosed with cancer, she went to Rome. And there in Rome, she, she, got, she kind of washed in a particular fountain because there was kind of this, you know, tradition or superstition, really, that um, if you take the water from this particular fountain, there's healing properties in it. Not, not naturally, but supernaturally. And uh, she brought some of these waters home with her, jugs of water, and she had them in her fridge. We came to visit her. They lived in Indi Indiana, and she told me, you know, you could any help yourself in the fridge, but just don't touch that water. That's holy water. And so she would take a little bit of that water. And my grandmother, being a very devout Catholic, um, she had uh, in her room um, a, a kneeler, like you would find in a Catholic church. So a little kneeler where she would say her, the rosary and her prayers and such. And in the room, there was also mounted to the wall, like you would see in a Catholic church, at any entrance of the Catholic church, a place where the holy water would go, where as she walked into a room, she would cross herself. Now, of course, there's nothing biblical to back up this whole thing, and, and the waters did not heal her at all. She eventually died, in fact, she died fairly quickly of the cancer that she had. Guys, I look at this, and I think, if this truly was a work of God, if God sent an angel down to stir up the waters, it seems cruel. I mean, it does. First come, first serve. This fellow has been infirmed for 38 years. Was he there for 38 years? Maybe the first time he came, if he was there for 38 years, maybe at the beginning, maybe he thought, well, you know, I'm, I, I've got this condition. I'm, I, my body is, is lame. It's unable to, to move and to work as it was meant to, created to. But, but I think I have enough strength. I, I, think, that, I think that I could possibly get, get there and get into the water first. But as the years go by, now you're aging. And if you have a condition, a chronic condition like this, the chronic condition usually doesn't stay the same. It gets worse as time goes on. So to me, it would seem that the Pool of Bethesda would have been, become 
a place of hope and a place of frustration. Hope if you could possibly be the first one in, but frustration if you weren't the first one in. I don't know. This is why we need to be careful readers and students of the Bible. There are times that we read things and the Lord is giving us, or the writer, the Holy Spirit, of course, inspiring the writers, they're giving us insight to what might have been happening, the drama behind what might have been happening. It's interesting, in verse 7, he says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Was this an explanation? Was this an excuse? You say, boy, you're being hard on this guy. Hold on, I, I, I'm... I got a few more hits before I I get done here today because I want us to think about this. I'm not faulting the man. I think that this was a sincere and honest excuse. I I can't do it. I'm I'm not fast enough. I just can't do it. It's interesting that Jesus asked the question in verse six, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? might seem like a strange question. Jesus would ask questions like that quite often. A blind man, what would you like me to do for you? Oh, isn't it apparent I'm blind, you know? And I think it's worth noting when we read things like that, these words of Jesus, we need to stop and we need to ponder and we need to say, from Jesus' perspective, from God's perspective, Are there some things that are more important than just physical healing? Yes. Or emotional well-being? Yes. There are things more important than that. And I think we forget that because many of us, especially from our culture, you know, we just kind of, uh, we have expectations. And our expectations usually fall into the category of, we should be happy, we should be healthy, uh, we shouldn't have to suffer. Uh, if I'm suffering, there must be something wrong. Even, even modern day church culture has bought into this lie, you know, that God wants you healthy and wealthy, and if you're not, there's something wrong, and the problem is you probably just don't have enough faith. That sounds like, boy, that, you know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like, first one in? That's what it sounds like, it sounds kind of cruel. I don't have enough faith? How do I get more faith, Lord, if it's all on me? Well, anyway, I want to I just kind of leave this for a moment, and I want to talk about something else. So obviously, I'm, I'm not drawing from the text, but, but just kind of moving away from the text for a moment. And, and it's on the topic of excuses, because there's a lot of excuses that we make for our lame Condition, And I'm not speaking about physical, a physical condition. I'm speaking about a spiritual condition. Um, we make excuses. People blame their upbringing, their underprivileged background, their overbearing mother, their absent father, their mood swings, <laughs> their stress level, their nationality. You know, people blame a lot of things for their lameness. Jesus said, do you want to be made well? Do 
Do you want to be made well? You know, Jesus, when he heard the explanation or the excuse from the man, he didn't say, well, yeah, that's, boy, life's been hard for you, hasn't it? He doesn't say that at all. He just simply says to him, rise, take up your bed and walk, verse 8. So here's the question that I think of when I read this portion of scripture. I think, well, what if the man just laid there? I don't want to get up. What if the man said, I don't want to carry my bed. It's too heavy. See, there's this weird, unbiblical mindset that that many people have, and sadly, many Christians have. It's kind of like this. If God wants me to fill in the blank, he'll do it regardless of what I do. And I think that there are a lot of people who are suffering from a spiritual lameness. They're not not growing. They're not maturing. They're not advancing spiritually. They have all sorts of excuses why they're not. You know, well, if I went to a better church or or if if, if this or if that or, you know, all of these different excuses and they just kind of stay put. They're like, they're like a lame man who's laying on the ground saying, I don't want to get up. I don't want to do anything to better myself. I'm going to just lay here until the strain of the water. Then all I have to do is throw myself into the water. No other commands. No other demands. You know, guys, I think it's interesting. Jesus said, do you want to be made well? You know, we live in a time, I was sharing with the first service, that it's such a strange time where if you own a business, you're hard-pressed to find people to work for you. Doesn't that seem strange? Usually, you know, in times past, the problem was there's no openings. There's not enough jobs. All the jobs seem to be filled. I want to work. I I want to do my part, but I just can't find a job. And now there's so many jobs. There's so many openings. I've mentioned how when we take our vacation down to the Oregon coast, uh, the past few years, now, of course, the COVID stuff, but COVID's been over for quite some time. I don't think people got the memo yet. But... Um, you know, we would go to restaurants and they would be closed. Well, we're closed today, we're closed tomorrow, we're open on Wednesday, but only for this, you know, these, these few hours. And you would go into those restaurants when they were open and you'd say, why were you guys closed? You know, Monday, Tuesday, oh, we don't have anyone to work. There's no one to do the work, so we're, we're hard-pressed. We can't, we can't open if we don't have waiters, if we don't have cooks, if we don't have, you know dishwashers, whatever, the things you need. And yet, we live in a time where it's, there's kind of this strange thing. You guys, you've been paying attention to what's happening in California, what they're trying to make uh, happen down in California, you know, that uh, if you're of a certain ethnic group, you should receive a check. 
uh, to kind of make up for the way your ancestors had been treated. The number, the amount on the check has gone up, uh, a phenomenal amount of money. I forget the amount, it's in the millions. I, is, it, is it 20 million or 200 million? It's a lot of money. And you just think, what in the world is going on? And it's just kind of this mindset. I just want to stay where I'm at. I just want to lay here. Well, I'm not talking about politics. I'm going to bring it back to the spiritual. You know, guys, as Christians, um, do you know that Father has expectations for us? And uh, as a Christian, you know, as a pastor, as a kind of an older brother in the faith, I have expectations for believers. Now, we would be wrong for Father to have expectations or any of us to have expectations of another believer if we did not have the Word of God, the Spirit of God dwelling within us. Think of that. What spirit? The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, according to the scripture. The same spirit that um, the apostles, the 120 in the upper room, male and female, the Holy Spirit came upon them. That Greek word is api, upon them. And empowered them with that dunamis power of the spirit so that they could go out and be witnesses for Christ. Now, we shouldn't have expectations on one another as Christians if that wasn't a reality because, you know, then it's kind of each one of us pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But that's not how it is as Christians. We should have expectations for ourselves. Am I growing? Not so we can take pride in our growth, but, you know, I think the Lord wants us to see that there's growth taking place. <laughs> Am I growing? You know what I found? I found that it takes <laughs> little effort. I mean, it really does to grow a lot in Christ. Because it's like the Lord wants, you know, it's, it's almost like um, the parent your first child, I say the first child because it's magical, the first child, you know. The first child, oh, they're sitting up. Oh, look at that. Oh, I can't believe it. I, I think our child's a genius. I don't think I've ever seen a child sit like that, you know, at that age, you know. And, and then they begin to kind of scoot around the coffee table and the couch, and you know what's coming. And then you start, you know, okay, let's put them... Let's put him, her, put him in the middle of the room. Okay, you stand up. Now you call him, call him. Come on, come on, come on, come on. You know, and, and, and then once the child takes a step or two, the parents go crazy. I mean, you would think that, you know, they just got their Ed McMahon check in the mail or something, you know, and they're, wah, woo, wah, you know. And I wonder if the Lord's not that way with us. Stand up. I don't want to stand up. If you don't stand up, you're not going to get any better. Stand up. Rise up. Pick up your bed. And we do that. Oh, so that was great. Let me show you some things. 
Jesus. He says to the man, <laughs> rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, the word walk, the Greek word that's used here, it means the same thing in our English language. It means to tread all about, to walk at large. But figuratively, the word that's used here means to pick up your bed and live. Pick up your bed and live. And immediately, verse 9, immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And you almost hope, you know, you'd almost hope to read. And, and there in those colonnades, in those, that patio, you know, where multitudes of people, the man stands up, he takes up his bed, and all of the people begin to cheer. And they all come to the same conclusion. The Messiah is among us. He is Jesus the Lord. He is the creator of all things. You might be saying, what's that all about? You should have been here last week and the week before, the Samaritans, because that's the conclusion they came to without seeing one miracle. One miracle. But of course, that's not what happened. We see the, even though it was apparent that the Messiah was in their presence. You say, how was it apparent? Isaiah prophesied. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. It's like, it's like, you know, it's apparent Messiah is here, but all they could do, all some could do, is find fault with him. And what was the fault they found? Well, it was the Sabbath. It's unlawful to carry your bed. Look at verse 10 again. And the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath is not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Okay. I know I'm being hard on the guy, but is this another excuse? He told me to do it. I'm just, I'm just following orders. Just following orders. I'm just doing what I'm told to do. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. Good place to find a guy that had just been healed. And said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And the man departed and, oh, here's another one. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. You say, Dan, why are you so hard on this guy? I'm just wondering what was making this guy tick. Who healed you? Let, let me put it in another. Who told you to break the law? The Sabbath law. Which, by the way, picking up his bed or his bedroll and, and walking was not breaking the law. It was breaking the interpretation of the religious leaders that's what they were doing. That, that's what he was doing in their opinion. They had made the law such a burden rather than a blessing, or the Sabbath, excuse me, uh, such a burden rather than a blessing. And it's that way today. 
You go to Israel. If you're in a motel on, on uh, Sabbath, it's a Jewish motel, um, you get on the elevator, and that elevator is going to stop on every floor. Why? Because they don't want their Jewish visitors to break the law by working, making a fire, <laughs> you know, pushing the button, and so it'll go each floor. You say, Lord, is that what you meant about working on the Sabbath? No. No, of course not. Guys, listen. This whole thing, I wonder, why did the man, why did he go back to the Jews? Why didn't he just go his way? You think after 38 years of being infirm that you could find something better to do than to hunt down the Jews that are building a case against Jesus because they want to kill him? You say, oh, you're reading into the text. No, I'm reading the text. The very next verse says, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. For what reason? Well, now they know who he is, which, by the way, they surely knew who he was. How many people were doing what Jesus was doing? They knew who he was. They're just building their case. You need two or more witnesses. You know, we might call you at a later date to come in and to uh, bring accusation against this man who is gracious to you, who is merciful to you, who, who healed you, not among you know, you and, and many, but you alone, you alone. Do you ever wonder, why did the Lord heal this man? I had mentioned to the first service that I knew a fellow years ago, and, and he would, we would uh, kind of debate different scriptures, and his, his uh, stance was that Jesus healed every person he ever came into contact with that Jesus healed them. And I said, but the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, the Bible teaches contrary to that. And he goes, no, I don't believe that. I believe that Jesus healed every." I said, well, don't you think, and I would take him to scriptures like this, and I would say, don't you think it would have been more of a wow factor if we would have read that Jesus did not say to the man, do you want to be healed? But he raised his voice to all those people who were infirmed, who were blind and, and sick and lame and, you know, all of these things. And he, he said to everyone there in the court, and he said, do you guys want to be healed today? And he healed them all. Don't you think that would have a more, more of a wow factor? Do you know, guys, I think that even the fact that it was one man speaks a biblical truth to us. And the biblical truth is this. We want to think that God sees us as one in the masses. But you need to get back to the word of God because the word of God teaches that God sees us individually. It's not the masses. It's not, oh, look at all the people gathered there. Look at all the people on the earth. You know, what is that little, you know, <laughs> and open the door and see all the people. No. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says he knows how many hairs you have on your head. Oh, 
Uh, where can I go from your presence? If I ascend into hell, you are there. Descend into hell, not ascend. If I, if I ascend uh, to the highest mountain, there you are. There's no escaping you. The Bible says, he keeps their tears in a bottle. Jesus says, you are the apple of my eye. In the book of Malachi, Jesus, uh, the, the Lord says, I keep saying Jesus, but you know what I mean. The Lord says in Malachi that he keeps a book of remembrance of those. So that would be individuals, not a group of people, but individuals who are talking about him. He keeps a book of remembrance. Do you think he needs a book to remember? No. It speaks of the intimacy that he has with us. I mean, it's just so beautiful, guys. I have no idea why he healed this particular man, but he did. And, and, and I, I, I just think it's, you know, it's, it's beautiful. We know it. You've been around, you know, the Bible for any amount of time. You're probably familiar with this portion of scripture. But I, I, I just think it's worth noting that when Jesus said, take your bed, it could also be rendered, take it away or get rid of it. Wouldn't it be ridiculous if the man was to say, I think I'm going to keep it around, you know, just in case I become lame again. You know, because you, you never know. I mean, something bad could happen and I might need it. I'm speaking about spiritual lameness. Us not doing our part, us not putting our effort into it, us not spending time reading the word, praying through the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and not by the word of God. It's not just listening to you know, teachings on, on the radio or the television or coming to a church and listening to someone. It's you individually taking the word of God in your hands and reading the scriptures and meditating upon those things and your faith is being built. How is your faith being built? Your faith is being built because as you're reading the scriptures, you're saying, God does not change. He remains the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And look what God did here in 2 Kings, and look what God did here in 1 Chronicles, and look what God did here in the Psalms with David or, or Asaph or Moses or one of the other Psalm writers. Look at the New Testament. The New Testament is simply confirming what God had said before. Look at the epistles. The epistles. The apostles did not teach anything that Jesus did not teach. They amplified what Jesus had taught. See, it's, it's wonderful when you look at this. Oh, my faith is being built. My faith is getting stronger and stronger in the Lord. I have confidence in the Lord. I'm growing. I'm maturing. I'm changing. Thank you, Lord. Romans chapter 13, verses 12 through 14. I'm, I'm almost done. It says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Or, in other words, get rid of it. And let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in rivalry or drunkenness, not in lewdness 
and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Make no plans to return to the same old lame life. See, that's our part. You set me free, Lord. What does he set you free from? You set me free, Lord. Some of you come to faith in Christ and the Lord delivers you and he delivers you from alcohol or drugs. They say, oh, happy days. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for delivering me. And then you meet not so well-meaning Christians who love to exercise their liberty. Would you like one? No, thank you. Press the point. Why press the point? Don't press the point. Leave it at that. Leave it at that. You're not legalistic, are you? What do you mean? Well, you know, come on. You, you know the old adage, everything in moderation. And the young Christian says, yeah, maybe, maybe I am legalistic. Maybe I am being foolish and, and, and too narrow about this. Yeah, yeah, I'll have one. You say, Dan, you use illustrations like that. They're unreal. No, 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 they're real. I pastor a little church, and I've seen people fall into that trap over and over again since I've been here, you know, pastoring this church. That's precise thing. Someone struggles with what they're watching on the internet, that thing that they carry around with them in their phone, uh, on their phone. The Lord convicts them. The Lord sets them free. They do their due diligence. They get rid of their iPhone. They get a flip phone or some other device. They pull it out to make a call. And someone says, some not so well-meaning Christian, oh, where'd you get that thing? The 80s? Well, I guess not in the 80s. The 90s? <laughs> you know, early 2000s? Where'd you get that thing? Come on, let me look at that. Really? And they press it. Stop pressing it. And the guy says, yeah, I guess it is kind of ridiculous. I could handle an iPhone. There was a spiritual lameness in the church. People are intoxicated from the pulpit to the pew to the Sunday school room with the children. It ought not be that way. We're making provisions for the flesh. 
we're going back to the vomit that God delivered us from because we think that our happiness or our liberty is what really counts rather than heeding the words of our Lord. Narrow is the gate. And if we didn't have to deal with those, we've got, of course, the legalization of marijuana. We have more phobias in our culture today than at any other time in human history. I'm paranoid. I don't know why. I'm just paranoid. I'm paranoid. I'm paranoid. Why do you stop smoking the pot? No, it's not the pot. The pot is helping you. It's helping me to maintain. No, the pot is making you paranoid. <laughs> That's what, it's, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's messing you up, and yet you're a slave to this thing because you're somehow convinced that it, well, it's an herb, you know, and, you know, it is an herb. It is a plant. <sighs> we used to live in San Diego, and, uh, you know what was natural when I was growing up? No, um, poison oak was natural. <laughs> and rattlesnakes were natural where we lived, rattlesnakes. We, we would go hiking because we were always in the hills, you know, sagebrush, rocks, you know, San Diego was nothing like here, you know. And, and you'd hike around, and there's a rattlesnake, and that's natural. Now, we'd be a fool, well, we were foolish to play with those things, but well, we'd be a fool to just reach down and say, I'm, I'm just going to kind of toy with it. You know, it's, it's natural. It's created by God. It should be okay. No! Well, my hand's swelling up now. <laughs> I might lose this sucker. We've got to think biblically. We've got to grow up spiritually. We've got to be people. I mean, what would the Lord say? Do you want to get better? Do you want to walk in freedom? Do you want to be free from bondage? Do you want to stop being addicted to pornography? Yes, Lord. And so many of, many of us, sadly, even as Christians, we might say, yes, Lord, with our mouth, but that's where it stops. We don't do our due diligence to do anything else to help ourselves grow. What if the man would have said, I don't want to stand up and walk? What if the man would have said, I don't want to pick up my bed? That sounds like work to me. Would he have remained in the same condition he was in? It was God's grace that caused him to go to that, <laughs> that pool on that day to bless that man. It's the same grace that we are saved by. The same grace. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. But according to his mercy, he has saved us. There should be this attitude of gratitude in our hearts. We as Christians need to have this more than maybe anyone else in the world. You know, my mother um, came to faith in Christ in her 80s. But my mother, being, you know, a person of her generation, she, she still knew manners. And she taught her children. 
please and thank you. I mean, I grew up, you know, when someone hands you something, you say thank you, if you're gonna take it, if you, if you really want the thing, you say thank you, you exhibit gratitude for what's being given to you. I would say thank you every time I got my paycheck. One time my boss said, why are you thanking me? You work for it. And I said, but you're writing the check. Thank you for my paycheck. Then I'd expand it. Thank you, Lord, for providing the work. Thank you, Lord, for providing the body that's able to do the physical work that I do. See, we lose this mentality, and then we get to a place where we're, we're, not gratitude, we're not grateful for what God is doing. And when we're not grateful, I think we just fall back into a lame condition, and we're not growing, and we're not progressing, and we need to be so careful. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? And Okay. Thank you, Lord. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be men and women. Oh, Lord, you've given, you've done all the heavy lifting. You've died in our place. You took our sins upon you, Lord. You've forgiven us. You've set us free. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. We pray, Father, that we would do our part and now walk as new creatures in Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we would do our part and yield to your spirit. And when we're grieving your spirit, that we would stop and say, oh, Lord, forgive me. Lord, we thank you that, you know, we can, we can sin and sin and sin and, and we could fall back on, if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And, and, and it's beautiful and we thank you for that, but we don't ever want to take that for granted. We want to grow. We want to mature. We want to become men and women that you could use to your glory, Lord. We love you. We thank you. Pray that if there's anyone here that have not placed their faith in you, that, Lord, you'd persuade them by your spirit to surrender their life to you so that they could truly be set free.